Hello, and welcome to the Sensi Lab Creative AI Podcast, Episode 4. Uh, my name is John McCormack. I'm the director of Sensi Lab, and joining me today at the console is Nina Ratchet, physicist and PhD researcher. Hello, Nina. Hello. I say physicist. Should I say former <laughs> physicist or physicist? <laughs> you keep it as physicist. Physicist, yeah, yeah, good, good, good. <laughs> Especially this week, I think we heard about that black hole being discovered. Uh, oh, not yeah. being discovered, being image. being imaged. Yeah, it's very interesting. So what did you think about that? Uh, it's amazing. Yeah, very amazing. <laughs> we could have another podcast on it. Um, and also joining joining me today, a special guest. Uh, computational artist Andy Lomas, who's visiting us from all the way from the UK. Hey, Andy. Hello. Thank, thank you so much for being here and for you. You've been working with us in Sensi Lab for the last couple of weeks on some projects in creative AI. So we thought it'd be a good opportunity to bring you in and have a chat about your work and uh, what you think about machine intelligence. So our mm -hmm. topic today is human machine creative collaboration because that's something that we're all interested in. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a big issue, I guess, in terms of contribution. So who makes the contribution more, the person or the machine? And what is the contribution of the machine? So that's something we'll, we'll get into. But maybe the, first to start with, tell us a little bit about your artwork and how you, how you work with the computer and what you're trying to achieve with your artwork. Uh, I guess my artwork's about exploring the sort of complex, rich systems that I guess nature uses for creating life, for how it, you know, what we're all made out of, and using the computer as a way of simulating some of those processes, particularly the processes of how things grow, the sorts of forms and structures that you see of natural things, and what is it that's about those that's really different from what's like traditional human constructed things, rich, crazily complex organicness. And and also, I think it's I think I'm really interested also is how the reactions we have to those sorts of things. It's almost like there's sort of forms and structures, and I think we are particularly just attuned to react to organic things. I guess things which are potentially poisonous or food or you know things that that help you or you want to run away from. So I think you have this like really visceral reaction to organic complexity, the sort of thing that comes from grown things. That's always fascinated me, and I guess I'm using a computers to simulate. Morphogenesis, so basically the process of things growing, just almost like creatively explore it almost like the medium to create things with, find out what it's capable of, what it can do, what almost like what I'm interested in, my own reactions to things. So trying to explore it quite intuitively, I'm not trying to just sort of, I guess, map the space, almost like categorize it like a zoologist. What I'm interested in is this is pure computationally created things, but I think has like a really almost like surprisingly strong reaction. So for, for someone who hasn't seen your work, I mean, if you haven't seen Andy's work, uh, please go to his website, andylomas.com. Yeah, yep. that's right. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of classify it as a kind of new organicism in a way because it reminds you of things that are natural, but it's clearly not natural. Nina, is that how you, what do you what, how would you describe Andy's work having seen it? Is that is that how you would describe it? Or? <laughs> yeah, it's, like, uh, it's just a sound. It's a. Uh, did did it conjure up in your imagination things about nature? Yeah, yeah, definitely. A lot of them reminded me of, like of landscapes. I loved. I loved also just like the kind of like the black and white and just really like yeah monochromatic heavy contrast of the images. Some of them 
definitely were disgusting. So I think you achieved that. Yeah. And I actually love that yeah. kind of aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just that, you know, I was just talking um, with Elliot before about that fear. I can't remember the name of it. It's like tritophobia yeah. or something where you're it's afraid cool. of yeah. holes, holes in things. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what it sparks for me. So, so yeah, I found some people definitely react a lot stronger. Yeah, yeah. There's actually one exhibition I was doing where there's one of the people who's actually working at the art centre who, whilst we were setting them up, like just one of the prints on the walls and stuff, mm-hmm. she just kept on coming in and then spending about sort of 30 seconds there and just going then, ah, and like, I can't <laughs> take this anymore. And, more, more, okay. and about yeah. half an hour later, she'd be coming back in again. So it sort of <laughs> like, you know, disgusting but addictive. Yeah, I guess, and you know? I don't think I have that fear at all. <laughs> but I, I do. <laughs> what? But I didn't get it from Andy's work. Uh, yeah, I know that. fear. Mm, Mm. In certain, it's very particular about the heart size of the holes and the number of them. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, do, I can associate with that. Okay. But I didn't, I didn't get that from your your work. I mean, I I, I think they're really beautiful. I didn't find mm. them ugly at all. I think they're. Well, um, I think they've got a bit of both in quite a lot of them. So mm. I quite when, like when you had the, like the kind of when it was like evolving, and then the the holes would start to appear, and you get these like weird ridges. That was I don't know, very kind of. Physical, like I'm not sure the word for it. It's very sort of visceral. Yeah, visceral. Yeah. Visceral, but it's the familiar, strange thing. So it's yeah, familiar in its sort of yeah. actions. It yeah. reminds you of something, but it's strange in its appearance, mm. which is, I think, the appeal of of a, of a lot of work that sort of uses these a life techniques. Is mm. that it reminds you of real life, but you're thinking, what actually is this? It doesn't. It mm. looks like something I should know, mm. but I clearly don't know it. And I guess one of the reasons I'm usually doing things like really quite simply, black and white, just, you know, I mean, well, most of my work is monochromatic. Mm. I'm a bit of a running joke with some of my friends. <laughs> the, uh, basically, everything just represented probably really quite simply. So it's just like white balls, self-shadowed, monochromatic. Mm. And almost because I'm interested in almost like how simple can it be. It was like if I was making them sort of like, you know, pink and glutinous and shiny, and I'd feel them like as cheating. It's right. almost like... I'm mean, just in something that has this quite strong reaction, even though it's such a simple, rep- almost graphic representation. So that's one, I guess, the reasons behind that is almost just saying, is there just something, I don't think you can ever do things purely, but it's almost saying, let's try and make it just form and motion. And do you still get that reaction? And to my mind, yes. Mm. But I, it does have a certain aesthetic. You're using um, 3D shading mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and as Nina said, it's kind of, you know, it is monochromatic and everything. I guess one of the aesthetics is pretty much a direct homage to Hackel's, you know, mm. the German philosopher, zoologist in the 19th century who did all these, I think, really quite amazing studies of forms in nature mm. and was comparisons between like, yeah, this is an octopus and this is a piece of sponge and this yeah. is a microorganism and this is, you know, all sorts of different organisms and showing lots of structural and symmetrical similarities between different things. Mm. And he did some coloured work, but I think his most beautiful work is often his, his monochromatic, monochromatic work. Yeah. And often it more accentuates this, the similarities between very, very different things, I think, by having this almost like pared down mm-hmm. representation. Mm. So a topic that we really wanted to talk about was human-machine creative collaboration. And so you have a piece of software that you've written called Species Explorer. Perhaps first just tell us a little bit about what that is and how it works. And maybe why is probably and, the or, Okay, and why, <laughs> why, why, why does it work? Well, I assume thing. because the code compiles, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, the code only compiles, but it doesn't have to compile. It's Python. So it's ah, okay, Python. all right. Uh, that was very, very geeky there. <laughs> 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 but the, the, I guess the reason for writing that in the first place was 
almost like you create these systems that hopefully are capable of these really rich results, but then it becomes a real challenge how to actually find stuff, how to work with it, how to, you know, do you just try things randomly? Do you get just like this bank of almost like ridiculous number of sliders and then you just try things with it? And particularly to my mind, once you've got a system which, you know, the sort of systems that do the interesting things, complex things like simulating growth, things like that, there's often a lot of things that control that, but often in very unintuitive ways. So that it's not just, you know, this, this one slider is what makes the thing bigger or smaller. It's often that the relationships between the controls you've set up are almost deliberately strange. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like a particularly difficult set of, you know, it's more like having a music synthesizer with too many controls and they're all going to do really weird things. Mm. So how to actually work with that, how to find the moments where the interesting things happen. I think mm. you have an analogy, John, it's like Klondike landscape yeah there's a, there's a um quite a famous paper by um a psychologist uh, perkins who who wrote this thing about creativity about the klondike spaces so mm-hmm. you know there's these little rivers of gold that mm-hmm. you're mining for in a you know three-dimensional world of rock and sometimes you can strike a vein of gold and that goes to this really rich super interesting area but other times the vein just runs out and really you have no idea about where those veins are so it's basically you can just start digging holes at random and hope that you find something but yeah. is that really the best way absolutely to yeah. do it you have to start somewhere then once you've found a vein of gold you really want to follow it through mm-hmm. so i think it's it's kind of a nice analogy i it's maybe works as an analogy in some systems but not in others because the structure of those systems has to have connection between mm-hmm. one point that's really interesting and another point that's really interesting. And if if it's a neighbouring point and it's similar, well, then yes, that usually works. But if it's a neighbouring point and it's very different, then it's basically like the gold is just little specks randomly distributed throughout the rock and f- you can never follow a vein. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of down to how you construct computationally the space that you're exploring. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, that, that's, I think it's really interesting is, yeah, the, the form of the space it's almost like, I mean, one of the things I'm pretty interested in is, well, I guess one of my intuitions from like earlier work I did where I'd only had like a relatively smaller number of parameters mm. and then you can actually plot these things out. It's almost like charts and then just try to see where, where does the interesting stuff happen is that it's often at sort of transition zones or tipping points to instability or a point between, you know, maybe there's big areas of the parameter space where it all does the same sort of thing mm. and then almost quite suddenly changes to a different behaviour at a different place. But the most interesting things, I think most creatively, are not the most like stable behaviours. It's mm-hmm. what happens at those tipping points, what happens in those sort of boundaries. So have you found techniques to actually like locate those points? <laughs> so that's, well, I guess that gets into some of these machine learning sort of things we're trying. When things I've been doing are things like, you know, if you've got some way of estimating or predicting the probability at a different point, at any point in the space, that it's likely to be like one thing or another thing. Yeah. Or maybe you start looking for the points in the space where it's almost less clear, where it's almost like where there's a high probability of it being both. In Species Explorer, it sort of shows me the results at lots of different parameter values that it sort of like runs the system, a given mm. set of parameters, and you know, maybe get like 100 different parameter values and it's run this system and grown the forms. Mm-hmm. And then I can do things like, you know, categorise and say, these ones all look, look a bit like brains and these ones all look a bit like fish scales or something. Mm. And, then, and then you can sort of use simple machine learning techniques to 
predict at different new parameter points what you know, whether it's likely to be brain-like, whether it's likely to be fish-scale-like. So you can maybe then say, look for things which are a high probability of being both brain and fish scale, mm -hmm. which maybe is in the transition zone. So that's one thing I've used previously. Mm. And yeah, sort of, yeah, I think it's sort of working. <laughs> but I think it's an area that needs you know, needs more work. So in your talk last night, I th thought it was really interesting. You, you made the comparison with chess mm. and you talked about uh, Gary Kasparov getting beaten by Deep Blue in the 90s and how that was sort of like AI conquers the human mind. But then... Uh, you said that the story was actually more interesting what happened after, which mm -hmm. was that people started using computers to help them play well, chess. Particularly Kasparov. I mean, yeah. He personally was like really promoted and pioneered this almost like enclave of chess. Yeah. Mm. But the key thing about it was that it liberated you from being constrained by risk because mm -hmm. you thought, is this move crazy? I'll ask the computer. If the computer says, yes, it's crazy, then okay, that's fine. I, yeah. I won't do it. But if it says, no, I don't know what the answer to that is, that doesn't seem crazy. Well, you felt more confident about going forward. And I think we talk a lot about collaboration with machines. That seems like a really nice way of thinking about them, yeah. that they liberate you from worrying about risk. Mm. So anyway, that's one thing I yeah, I think I what I really like of the yeah, Kasparov story is yeah, that thing of yeah, rather than it just being this almost like opposition's challenge of like us versus the computers. It's mm. the story of how does working collaboratively so that yeah, basically having the chess player with a computer on both sides of the board, how does that change the, the game in a way which is frees you up to be much more experimental? You say like Kasparov's way of describing saying it reduces the the fear of making a blunder, reduce the paranoia and frees you up to try the really, really crazy move, which you maybe could have seen before and thought, well, that's really, look, that looks possibly interesting, but well, it's potentially really, really risky. Well, you get a way of testing the risk before you play the move by ask the computer. How that frees us up to be more fearless, I guess, I think is like a really interesting you know, idea. I mean, I think it's great the, the way you talked about that, but do you think at all that it like kind of detracts or takes anything away from like the human? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm uh, kind of struggling with it. I think, yeah, the, I mean, it's like, is the fear in some ways a good thing? Mm. Uh, it, I think what I'm recognizing is there are collaborations where we can work with the computers, almost us maybe working to our own strengths mm. and also trying to think about almost like, what is the creative process? What is it that, you know, we as humans, how we want to, work how we want to engage with things how we want to explore things and are there things that the com that computers can do that can be quite liberating with that can actually free us up but in that it is hatch it is changing changing what you do in a way which maybe like you know playing an instrument or something like that, maybe freeing you up to have no fear maybe is the wrong thing yeah you know it's actually you know does it make it too easy mm. one possibility you know so but, it, but just recognising that there's the possibility for all sorts of different engagements, relationships, and maybe if something that is just ridiculously difficult. I mean, I see one of the other analogies that we're talking about was like fly-by-wire with airplanes, and yep. particularly some, well, I might say, more military aircraft, where they're now making aircraft which are deliberately unstable because that means they can just turn on a dime. They've just like got some amazing, amazing aerodynamic performance things they can do mm -hmm. by making an aeroplane which is deliberately unstable rather than one that would almost fly itself. But it means that this is now an aircraft that no human can fly directly. Mm -hmm. But by having a fly-by-wire, it means that you now can have this system which is a different performance than you could ever use as a human before. Right. The chain, any change relationship, I guess, potentially yeah. has 
positives and negatives. Yeah. Last week we were talking about emotion and AI and we came to one conclusion about the impact of AI might actually affect people's emotions. And mm-hmm. the, so there's that old adage that comes from Nietzsche, I think he said, you know, the typewriter affects how someone writes. You've got a machine intelligence as a kind of co-creator with you. Do you think that affects how you actually create? It does, obviously, literally, mm-hmm. but conceptually, do you think it affects how you create? Yes. And often in terms like maybe quite subtle ways or just ways that, you know, it must sound trivial, but they really change the way you do things. I mean, mm. one of the big ones from my mind is I don't think about the parameters anymore. I've got a set, I think about the parameters in these systems when I set them up when I'm writing the engine and the code. Mm. But generally, once I've got it going, because it's going through the computer and I'm maybe more thinking about expressing almost my intent. I want to find variations on this one to almost like try and refine it, or I'm actively want, want to look for, you know, variety and then, okay, find me more brain-like things, but brain-like things which are maybe new ones, which are far away in the parameter space from other ones I've already found. That most of my thoughts go into almost more how do I search for the right thing? How do I define what it is that I'm when I want to look for? Mm which almost never involves parameters, you know, whereas before it was almost always, should I make that parameter 0.1 more or less? Yeah. <laughs> right? mm. And how little I ever think about that anymore. Or and often you get questions saying, so when you look at the parameters, what do you notice? And my answer now is often, I've got no idea because I don't look at the parameters anymore. So yeah, that actually has changed how I work in quite a sort of surprise being a subtle way, but mm. important way. Mm. So do you think that, in that kind of collaboration, you're using the tool that you've built, I guess I've said it in the question now, but do you reckon you're using it as a tool more or do you see it as a creative collaborator? Uh, that's a really interesting question. It's it's changed. It definitely started out more as just being this is a purely a tool and it felt yeah. like just like, you know, I've got too many parameters. Okay, let's get the computer to help me suggest new parameters to do. Yeah. What I suddenly I feel that as I work with it, and particularly as it starts learning, I'm using some machine learning techniques in there, and hopefully going to be using more with some of this, you know, some things we're exploring here at the Sensi Lab. It starts feeling more responsive, more like a co-collaborator. It's definitely not originating things itself. It's the feels very much where I'm sort of steering the search, saying like, okay, what I want, I like that, don't like that, you know, okay, but let's look more at what these, but it's. This almost like the suggestions it's coming back with start becoming more and more sensible, more and more rich. So it's that, it's that and in that sense, it feels like being coming more like a good loyal assistant, yes, <laughs> maybe quite like uncompromising. Exactly. Exactly. It's my PhD student. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it sort of feels, so it's not, I would definitely not say that it feels like it's originating things. And yeah. I don't see that on the horizon with how I'm working. Yeah. But it has changed how I work and it feels much more like I'm I'm rely on it mm. in ways that I didn't think I would originally. So do do you think it's made you more creative or your work better in some sense? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Less paranoid. Less <laughs> paranoid. It's maybe no, like the Gasparrow thing. The, the, <laughs> the, that, that thing of just, well, well, the first thing that made me write this system in the first place was I actually wrote the first version of my cellular forms like simulation system yeah. before I ever started writing Species Explorer. And it was just like, okay, I've got this system with basically you know, had 12 parameters and played around with a few pretty much random things. And it produced some results that sort of looked intriguing. 
But it was that just feeling of, I think this system is capable of some potentially really interesting things, but I've got mm. no idea how to find those. No idea how to, it's almost like I've been sort of, I've cast myself into this, you know, unknown landscape. I've got no idea how to start exploring. So that was the, the, the realization that there's like, okay, right. How can the computer help me explore as well as using, what are you using the computer to, as almost like medium to create things, to run these simulations? But can the computer help me explore this landscape? Because I'm, you know, I'm just frustrated. I, I've got some pictures that look sort of okay, but I think it's capable of so much more. How can I how can I find that? It's a nice metaphor of you. It's just like a navigator. Yeah, it, it sort of does feel like, you know, you write these systems and then it's just like, you know, it is felt like, you know, I've mm. got this unknown landscape and you go through different moods. It's almost like being, you know, arriving in a new city, arriving in a new place. Mm. And, you know, the first things are just like, okay, where am I? You know, just right, almost randomly walk around. Just yeah. I've got, just got to get some sense of where I am. And then you start finding, you know, places that you think are intriguing or places which you think, you know, I oh, don't want if I want to go there again. And you start steering, you know, a bit and then you find somewhere maybe you really like. And, and mm. But then you want to find somewhere new. And it does very much feel like going somewhere new and mm -hmm. discovering it. And, mm. you know. The paranoia makes sense then because it's like if you don't find, you know, like the spot that you're looking for that you don't even know it's there. Yeah. It's kind of this always feeling that you're like missing out on something that you could yeah. You know, or that slightly paranoid them. feeling of like yeah. you know, arriving somewhere completely new and you're a bit yeah. jet lagged and you're a bit, you know, <laughs> you're your brain, but it's, but it's also when you when you know nothing, it's, yeah. you know, it's uh, liberating but frightening. Yep. You don't want to always be in that state. Yep. Yeah, I think the, the, the whole landscape metaphor is kind of interesting mm. too, isn't it? Because it does... In previous times, people would be geographic explorers mm -hmm. <laughs> looking at uncharted new lands and making maps and things like that. And this is, you know, the metaphor is that you're in this computational space mm -hmm. and yeah. you're not really making maps of it in, in the way that you would make a geographic map, but you're trying to find the sort of best points of interest or the, the vantage points that give you a real overview of what this world is like. Mm-hmm. But also, they're also slightly misleading because we're talking about landscapes that are, you know, if you were to put that, that metaphor, extend it to what we're talking about, we're talking about something that's bigger than the universe, uh, that's yeah. just 99.9 .9 to the power, whatever, boring. And yeah. there's yeah, just yeah, a absolutely. tiny, tiny little bit of, you know, where you come across the oasis in the, in the desert. Yes, absolutely, yeah. 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 And, and, yeah and it's a landscape in... Well, I've been doing this like because it's a forty-four dimensional space. Yes, which, which is why you <laughs> it's want a psychedelic the computer doing this. It's like I don't want to have to be thinking forty-four dimensional space. Yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a good time to just talk a little bit about the use of the term AI. So, I think you use the term machine learning quite mm -hmm. a lot, which is which is very accurate. But do you think? I mean, AI is starting to make a bigger and bigger impact on art and creativity. But do you think it's the right? term to be using at the moment or is it projecting a little bit too far into what might be possible in the future i think yeah i think there is a danger of you go so so much into the the, the big question i was like is it conscious mm. and i think or is it intelligent even yeah inter yeah yeah and to my mind it it really isn't but what's really interesting is how intelligent like behavior it tends to produce mm. There's something really, really interesting there, but I'm quite, I don't feel right about calling it intelligence. Using techniques that come from AI research, but when you must name all the techniques, so far everyone's like, there's definitely not intelligence there. But, you know, it's doing 
surprising, particularly things like, you know, like AlphaGo0 and things like that, and astonishingly, apparently intelligent things. So what I'm doing, that it's machine learning, that it's learning how to better predict, learning how to predict new points in the space, what it's likely to be like, or starting to get into some of the work we've been doing here. When it runs the machine, can it, instead of it being me looking at things and rating and categorizing, can the machine start doing that well itself? And how much training does it need? But it Mm. very much does feel like it's a learning thing. It's Mm. almost like it's me training it or it's the system training itself for automatic categorization. But it's it's, it's all forms that I, I perceive as learning. So a lot of these co-creational ideas where you're working with something that's kind of like yourself. You're saying I'm like a computer, Emma. Well, no, 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 no. I'm saying, I was, I was going to ask Nina, yeah. well, all of us really, do you want to work with yourself? Yes. Do you want to work with a copy of yourself, yeah. something that's like you? Or I would like you... that you picked up on that. I thought that's exactly what I'm trying <laughs> to do. <laughs> well, trying to replicate myself, put that into a computer. Really? So I can help myself. Okay, so yeah. you trust you more than anybody else to <laughs> understand you. I guess that's reasonable. In my mind, it's almost the opposite. It's the, you know... Everything like, you can't I, do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like I'm overwhelmed by these number of parameters. I don't want to be working with another another thing that's also similarly overwhelmed by this system. <laughs> no, no, but it but it's <laughs> understands the Andy Lomas aesthetic and style and what you... You're, like, it's using your categorizations and it's saying, oh, you called this... Yeah brain or you called this worms uh here's some more worms because they're the categories that you've taught me mm. to understand to kind of put words in the ai's mouth which is wrong yeah. but yeah so yeah, it's but that, that also feels to me like a different thing that, that's self-reinforcement like, that's, that, that's not making me that's making something that can yeah it's always predict a bit what i some bit of what i do yeah you know, i guess that's where me seeing it as machine learning it's not that it's originated it and that's also one really big, big difference between maybe me and the system, which has actively learnt. And that's where it feels to me like it's collaborating because it's you know, going from being this very dumb system to the system that has learnt and is doing useful things by having learnt. Mm-hmm. But it's not becoming me, I don't think. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> give it time, yeah. give it time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, how much creativity do you ascribe to the machine learning system. So when when we go to a gallery and we see the Andy Lomas exhibition, mm-hmm. how much of that is you and how much of that is the computer? Or is that the wrong way to think uh, about it? I think I'd say at present it's it's actively both. I don't I don't I would not have got I don't think I would have just found those pieces. And it does feel to me like a discovery process. Even though I've written the, the code, mm. it does feel that I've then got to discover things within that system. I, do, I don't think there's almost anything I've done in the last five years that I could have found, could have discovered, without the computer helping me, working with me on that sort of almost like process of exploration, that process of discovery. So that it's, it's, not, it's utterly not things that I could have done you know, independently. Mm. Also, I don't think it's what the computer would have found by itself. So it feels to me like that, in that sense, it really is. It's a these collaboration. Are, these are collaboration pieces. Mm. I think that there are other artists who are much work trying to work on that, you know, total almost or, or supposedly autonomous. Auto- autonomous. Yeah. And I, I, and I think that's a really interesting area, but it's just not the area that I'm interested in. I'm mm. interested in 
I'm just in, in personally almost like exploring the landscape still. I'm, I'm, I'm less interested in writing a box and then I think I'll be a bit bored with just set it off and it's finding things and I'm, what do I do now? Mm. Oh, do I just go and play golf? I don't like playing golf. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so I, I want to still be engaged as part of the process is where I come from. So I think there's really interesting, you know, it's, and it's very, gets the heart of what we are as being humans. Can a computer be completely creative? What does that mean? But I guess that's not what my work's about. The fact that you say you collaborate with computers and you feel like they actually have some agency, I don't know if that's the word you would use, over the artwork as well. I'm just curious, what would you do in a time if you were maybe trying to be an artist without computers at all? Because it's something that you've worked with your whole life, right? I'm, yeah, it's a very difficult question. I think I'll probably be a very <laughs> different person. I think I'm very, I'm very thankful to people like, you know, Ada Lovelace and mm. Alan Turing and things like that to have come up with these ideas and what can made into these machines that we can then start to explore questions, completely like this Alan Turing stuff of, I think, post-war years, I think it was very much into what can we now even think about doing that we could not have possibly thought about doing previously. And that's what, to my mind, is that's what, what makes a computation machine exciting to me. Mm. What have I done without them? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm very glad I was, I've come after these things already exist. It's incredibly creative human discovery capable of so much. And that's what makes that whole, it, it basically opened up a whole world mm -hmm. that was hitherto impossible to access. Absolutely. At least at any level of, of detail. Mm. So. Well, John, what would you do? Yeah, I was afraid you were going to ask yeah. me that one too. <laughs> well, I I feel very similarly. I I I think I would have done something creative, but um, yeah. I think it would have been very different. I think we are in an extraordinarily lucky position to have access to machines that are really open to explore all sorts of possibilities that were were not possible to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that that has fundamentally changed how we think about. Oh, certainly for me, it's changed how I think about the world. So how I imagine what the world is and how it works in a way. Yeah. And I think that extends to a philosophical level. So computers have influenced philosophy a lot too. They're in incredible machines and, they're, and they're, they're incredible because they're open to so many different – they're not designed to do one thing. Mm -hmm. It's really up to the human imagination to work out what to do with them and how, how to do it. Which I think it's like Antirin's yeah, idea of the or universal computation machine. Yes. When you're still – yeah, when you start thinking, what on earth do I do with this thing? It yeah. can it can approximate any process to almost like any level of accuracy. Wow. Okay, that's a bit mind bending. Yeah. <laughs> what would you do, Nina? You'd be doing physics on paper. Yeah, I was thinking. I was first. I was going to say a writer, maybe, mm. but then maybe if I was around in like the twentieth century, I'd be doing physics. I don't know. It was much more interesting then. Honestly. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, with that. Um, very poignant thought in mind. Uh, we'll finish up, but thank you so much, Andy, for being here and for giving us time today and for a really fascinating discussion. Thank you. And thank you. It's really been really interesting being here at the Sensi Lab. And Great. It's a cool place you got here. Yeah, thanks. And thanks, Nina, for always, as always being here. Yeah, yeah, for always being here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, please join us again for the next Sensi Lab Creative AI podcast. Thanks. Bye. See ya. <laughs>